Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. As Ukraine attempts to push Russian forces back, perhaps beginning a much-anticipated spring counteroffensive, there is one other big angle to this war, and that's the diplomatic angle. In the past month, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited London, Rome, Paris, and Berlin to secure more arms and more economic aid for his country, and he's getting it. But what's been clear right from the start of this war is that while NATO has been rejuvenated and the West has mostly rallied to punish Russia, large parts of what we call the Global South are choosing to sit on the fence. China has proposed a peace plan, but it has also declared its friendship with Russia. India has dramatically increased its oil purchases from Russia. And other countries with large populations, Nigeria, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Brazil, they've all opted to not sanction Russia, and thereby they've created a bit of a global divide. The West and the rest. Now, Kyiv clearly understands this, and it's trying to do something about it. Well, my guest today is the person often deployed to win over the Global South. When we first met last year, Eminade Zaparova was at the Doha Forum in Qatar, describing what the war was doing to her country. And last month, Zaparova was in New Delhi, giving a speech titled Russia's War in Ukraine, Why the World Should Care. Now, the answer to that question, why the world should care, might appear simple on paper. But the real question, I think, is whether any countries in the Global South will change their policies. Zaporova is Ukraine's deputy foreign minister. She previously had a long career as a journalist before joining government in 2015. And we spoke while she was in Kiev in her office, juggling not only a million meetings, but also the threat of an imminent air raid. Deputy Foreign Minister, welcome to FP Live. It's a pleasure to be with you, Ravi, and with foreign policy audience. Thank you. Thank you for the time. Thanks for being back with us. So let me ask you this. I mentioned uh, the speech you gave in India. Before we get into the contents of that speech, why is New Delhi important for you? Uh, India is a huge country. It's a country that might be Vishwaguru, you know, the arbiter of the world, country that is uh, is a part of G20, and the presidency in G20 is yet another important factor that defines global impact of India. So India is one of the biggest economies in the world, is the country that has biggest population in the world. So, of course, uh, India plays a huge role, not only in the region, but also globally, and this role might be bigger And of course, for Ukraine, as a traditionally friendly country, 
prioritization of global south of foreign policy as was instructed by our president for Ukrainian diplomacy. This is exactly why we're trying to intensify our dialogue with India as one of the most influential countries in the world. So for people watching and listening to us, I just want to reiterate, before the war began, India got 0.2% of its total crude supplies from Russia. Today, it's north of 25%. So that's a dramatic increase, and it's cheap, discounted oil. In fact, the oil cap negotiated by the West is largely because of increased purchases by the likes of India. So, Minister, I'm curious about the contents of your speech. Given that India has been on the fence on this war, it hasn't sanctioned Russia, it has ramped up oil purchases. What exactly did you say to your audience in New Delhi that argued against the merits of cold, hard cash? Well, I will start by uh, stating that it was a very important visit, both professional and personally. Professionally, because I had a chance to vocal something that we feel as a reality, that we live in as a reality, and vocal some things that are... uh, Ukrainian vision, not the Russian narrative that is, I would say, quite dominant in India. And personally, it gave me a very strong flavor and sense of what and how India perceives, how Indian experts or Indian officials perceive Ukraine and the reality in Ukraine. So uh, to start with, the main uh, logic of my visit is actually to crack the ice, I would say, because it was the first high-ranking official visit after the full-fledged invasion. Uh, We believe that this might be only a start because there is a clear uh, vision that we have a huge potential for intensifying this dialogue. And then uh, there is a need for balance for India, I believe, as a G20 uh, country, if, and there is an active uh, interaction with Russia on different levels. So there is a quite a, a need for this balance when we speak about relationship with Ukraine. Second of all, uh, I will try to be brief in shaping the narratives that I've heard and this perception of how India sees Ukraine first. Many Indian uh, people, as well as experts, they think that Ukrainian people and Russian people are one nation. I had a question from one of the experts saying, why you know Russians better than all of us? Why don't you just sit on the table, negotiate and resolve the war and end up the war? I said that we are uh, not one nation anymore because it's as if as someone would compare and say that Indians and Pakistan people are the one nation. So why don't you just sit on the table, negotiate and solve all those Uh, turbulences that might happen bilaterally. Second of all, this Soviet narrative or this uniqueness of Soviet, of nature of relationship with Soviet Union and still an attempt to affiliate Ukraine to the Soviet heritage is partly the truth. So it's really something that we went through as our history. We were part of the Soviet Union, but it's the heritage that we are not willing to keep anymore. And actually the choice that we made as a nation, as a country, and we had the sovereign right to make this choice, to be a part of European Union, to be a part of European civilization, where the core of this civilization is freedom, not fear, not blackmail, not uh, 19th century uh, perverted way of thinking of spheres of influence. When one leader questions the existence of another country and then attacks it, So this was another attempt to vocal that Ukrainian history is, and the history of Ukrainian people is the history of colonial 
uh, attempt to control, to oppress, to eliminate, to erase identity of Ukrainian people, language, so on and so forth. And now Ukraine is strong enough, is uh, mature enough to speak its own story and to shape its own destination and kind of decide what is right and what is wrong. I also had a strong feeling that Indian people and Indian society, as well as the expert community, perceives this war as provoked one. So there is this feeling that uh, Putin was provoked to start the war in aggression because of NATO enlargement. But to this question and to this narrative, I clearly say and ruin this only with one fact, that the war did not start 24th of February 2022. It started in February 2014 with invasion of Crimea. And when this happened, we didn't have NATO enlargement. Uh, we didn't have uh, discourse about NATO membership. Uh, and we did not escape this aggression. So uh, let me ask you this, um, um, Deputy Foreign Minister. You know, when you... Uh, make a speech like that in India and in other parts of the global south, I imagine part of the response you get goes along the following lines. Countries in the global south often say that, yes, everything you're describing is correct, um, but uh, there were more casualties in Ethiopia last year than in Ukraine. Sudan is on fire. Where is the global attention there? Who's talking about the plight of the Rohingya? and so on and so forth. There's so many global crises right now. So when you hear those comebacks, when you hear the very clear financial constraints that these countries have, they're trying to tackle climate change. They need cheaper oil in the here and now to balance their books. That's why they're turning to Russia. That's why we have an oil cap. When you hear that, and obviously you want more support from the Global South, how do you respond to those financial and global concerns. Yes, it's, I believe that we were supposed to deal with those global challenges that we have as climate change, as poverty, as food crisis, and many more that we are supposed to deal as humanity. But instead, we have to tackle the challenges of aggression, which is unprovoked aggression. And we are not talking about an average country that attacks. I mean, uh, I don't want these words to be taken in a rude manner. It's just we are speaking about the P5 country, about nuclear country that actually, upon the logic of this P5 seat, is supposed to guarantee security to all of us, to my country, to Global South, to the globe, because of the Security Council permanent membership, because this was the logic when we all as humanity after the Second World War agreed to launch this institution as United Nations. Uh, but instead, instead, we have to deal with Russian uh, aggression against Ukraine and with Putin as a perverted leader, instead of thinking and discussing issues of, of uh, challenges that are in Global South. Second, it's about self-interest of many African, Asian, Latin American countries to protect the very sacred which is territorial integrity and sovereignty. Because if bigger attacks smaller, if country that has a veto right in United Nations attacks the other UN member state, it means that no one in the world can feel secured. 
So this is the message that I transfer usually if I hear these kind of things. And then, yes, we are not living in an ideal world. It's true. We, we tend to make mistakes as humanity, but isn't it us, isn't it we as humanity and our capability to think and know our history and make conclusions out of this history and make conclusions out of wars and conflicts that we have. I really thought that we are now living in the time in the 21st century of never again. In, in, in the century where human being life is a top priority for the leadership of many countries, but it's not. And this is what we clearly see in Bucha, in Irpin, when we see mass graves, when we see tortures, when we see how they kill civilians to death and torture civilians to death for nothing, for just standing in the queue for bread, or how they rape children, how they rape seniors. And this is happening in the 21st century in the place of the globe where we used to think civilization is performed to a higher and bigger extent uh, as a humanity deliverable, but it's not, you know? So I think that it's for self-interest of every single country to protect values, to protect principles and ruled-based order. And it's obviously that Russia violates all those norms that we all agreed to after the Second World War. You are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com live. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, which we often take on their behalf. So sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. So when you make these points in your travels in Asia, in your meetings with diplomats from other countries, I'm curious how they respond. But I also want to address uh, another related issue, which is that a number of these countries have now put forward plans or ideas or proposals to try and mediate an end to the conflict. So India has made signals that it would like to try and mediate. Brazil, uh, President Lula has been traveling around the world talking about mediation. China has proposed a peace plan. Uh, I think this week, a consortium of African states have tried to put forward another uh, idea for negotiating between Ukraine and Russia. When you hear these plans and proposals, especially from countries that have so far sat on the fence, they haven't sanctioned Russia or haven't joined Western-led sanctions, how do you respond? How do you take these offers for mediation? First, there is no any other country in the world that is more interested in having peace than Ukraine for very obvious reasons, because we die. The war is on our soil. We suffer everything, human losses, infrastructure damage, economic damage, loss of our people who flee to European countries. It's more than 8 million of Ukrainians who left the country, 7 million of other Ukrainians resettled in the country becoming IDPs, eternally displaced persons. So the consequences of the war are the ones that we even now cannot grasp. It's huge. Second, when we speak about peace, I think it's also crucial to understand that any peace might not be or kind of peace for as a goal or just kind of appeasement, I would say, is not uh, the language 
or the goal that we have to tackle to. I mean, let us imagine that Putin achieves his goals in Ukraine, even though he cannot up till today. Because let me remind to all of us that the initial plan of Russia was to take control over Ukraine in a matter of a week. But they failed, as well as the armed forces of Russia failed to take more and more lands. Moreover, Ukraine deoccupied a lot of villages and cities already. So it's, I believe, the main that we proved that the victory is possible that Russia is not the second largest army in the world as they claimed before. Uh, so when we speak about peace, it's crucial to understand that peace negotiation and the resolution should be based on justice. Because otherwise, if it's not based on justice, if any kind of you know uh, peace on the merit of a weaker or on the merit of Ukraine would be performed, uh, this will lead us to the other stage of aggression, only within some period of time, because it happened in 2014. You see, the Crimea lesson is very important in terms of understanding that appeasement language brings us what to... What you're saying is don't, don't appease a bully. Yeah, so it's like when 2014 happened, we as a country, international community uh, globally uh, was not able to respond adequately and then it was a motivation or inspiration for putin who took this as a as a license you see as a as a it, it sounds to me then what you're saying when you hear these offers of mediation from brazil or india or china you're saying no not right now no we are not saying this we all of course we welcome any attempt, any effort that comes from any country who is really willing to resolve the war. We only say that any resolution of the war should be based on international law and on justice. Because if it's not based on international and law, law and justice, it might not be um, comprehensive, let's say, and it might not last long. You see, we have Minsk. We had the whole blackmail uh, things around Minsk for years. Russia has been exploiting this Minsk to justify their own crimes in Crimea and Donbass and its own occupation, saying many things about Nazi state, about Ukraine failed state, about Ukraine didn't follow uh, Minsk. But they first, what they do, they first occupy the territory. And second, they want to legitimize its occupation. And Minsk was nothing but an attempt to legitimize the occupation. Of course, sovereign country might not uh, and should not accept it, because if it accepts it, you know, the state is really failed. So Ukrainians have been fighting for this and are fighting for this, for sovereignty and territorial integrity. And President Zelensky uh, performed his peace formula. So these 10 points are, as we feel, as we believe, should be the base of any negotiation, any peace resolution. This is what President Zelensky said to President Xi and to the leader of China during their phone conversation and to the special envoy who is today in Kiev. Uh, same message has been delivered to special envoy of President Lula. Same message has been delivered to anyone who is paying his or her visit to Ukraine.
It's not something that there is a tailored message for one country or for another. So to conclude, we do welcome really and honestly an attempt to help because we want to resolve the war. Second, we believe that uh, the only way how we can have a sufficient resolution of the war is understanding that the basis of this resolution should be justice and international law. Otherwise, we will only give more time for Putin to prepare for another aggression. And second, there will be a good showcase for other dictatorships and other countries that are projecting language of force that it might be the efficient instrument. But then again, we go to countries like African countries or Latin American countries or Asian countries who should understand that if Putin is allowed to commit his crimes in Ukraine, why should others would not be allowed? So I hear you when you say that you have a similar message for all of these countries that are offering to mediate. Uh, and that makes sense. But I think China is a little bit different. And I want to spend a beat on China here. Um, you know, Xi Jinping obviously met uh, President Putin uh, right before the invasion. Uh, they've talked about a friendship with no limits. In recent months, uh, the U.S. has said that it has intelligence that China was perhaps thinking about offering lethal aid to Russia. We don't have proof in public. Uh, maybe you do. Um, but China seems to me as distinct from the global south in that it has a different role in this conflict so far. So let me ask you this. How are relations between Beijing and Kiev right now? We are willing to intensify our dialogue. Uh, there is a strategic nature of this relationship. So formally, Ukraine and China are strategic partners. Uh, the fact of the conversation between Xi Jinping and President Zelensky was and is important in terms of delivering directly first-hand information. As far as we believe that something that President Zelensky vocaled, and he vocaled the reality, where we are with the consequences of the war, what has been happening in Ukraine, why this war is unprovoked, why we believe that it's not a conflict but the war. This has been set by President Zelensky, and it was important to deliver first-hand information, as well as I'm sure has been delivered to the Special Envoy Li Hui, who is, again, as I said, in Kiev currently. Uh, indeed, uh, we see a very active bilateral track between China and Russia. Indeed, we see benefits, economic benefits uh, with Russia and that comes out from this relationship with Russia. But what we uh, feel is important is that we say that uh, it's important to be at the right side of the history. And the right side of the history is not us, you know, dividing countries into bad and good ones. The war that we have uh, doesn't and didn't leave the space for, you know, different interpretations or 50 shades of gray. It's black and white now. So it's like, for us, it's clear that Russia is an aggressor state. Ukraine is a victim. And then supporting Ukraine 
helping Ukraine to defeat aggression is, we believe, to be at the right side of the history. We don't have confirmation about, as you said, little late. So uh, moreover, China officially always stresses that there is no weapon supply to Russia. And they declare their neutral status in this, or kind of non-interference status, as they say. So we believe that uh, China will keep on performing uh, this position. Mm. And then we believe that uh, in terms of any uh, brokership and peace brokership that might be performed, there will be a clear understanding that will be synchronized with the stand of Ukraine that there might be different peace plans, but the one that comes from Ukraine is the peace formula of President Zelensky. And this is the way how we think the peace might be performed. Otherwise, it will be only a prolongation or a freezing of the current situation and status quo and then giving more time for, unfortunately, aggressive regime that is today in Moscow to prepare for another stage of the war. Minister, um, I want to talk about Crimea. Um, you are a Crimean Tatar. Um, I know that the issue is one that's obviously very close to your heart. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the the role and strategic importance of Crimea in this war right now as your government is planning and undertaking its spring counterattack? Where does Crimea fit into things? Is it part of a plan to try and retake Crimea at some stage? How important is it in Putin's mind? Talk to us about that. Uh, indeed, Crimea is my homeland, and I left the peninsula back in 2014 when it was occupied by Russia, and it was a huge feeling of despair, and my biggest dream is to return home. And this was probably the reason why I dedicated myself for this fight, to implement my dream and to be finally, and to come back home. Uh, as a Crimean Tatar, I would say that this history of my people is the best book, I would say, I mean, in terms of understanding of the history uh, that would help anyone to understand the current reality in Crimea. Because centuries ago, when Russia for the first time annexed Crimea, it was 1783, when Catherine II annexed Crimea, she started uh, shaping a new geopolitical project, eliminating Crimean Tatar past, uh, and kind of glorifying the Russian empire and saying that Crimea is a sacred land of Russia. In 1944, half a year before Yalta Peace Conference took place, Stalin, under the pretext of collaboration of Crimean Tatars collaborating with Nazi Germany, which was a purely fake, uh, he exiled and deported Crimean Tatar women, seniors and children in the cattle ship wagons to Uzbekistan and other Central Asian countries that put Crimean Tatars under the threat of physical existence because every second Crimean Tatar died. And after that, while cleansing Crimea out of every single Crimean Tatar, Stalin and Soviets brought Russians to the peninsula. And today, Putin says that this is a Russian place, that this is the home for Russians and it's a traditional and sacred land of Russia. And this is why Crimean Tatars have been again oppressed, because it's a huge bone in this 
uh, Russian myth about Russia being uh, Crimea being a sacred land of Russia, because the very fact of physical existence of Crimean Tatars destroyed this myth, because we are indigenous people, we have born on this soil, and we are physically linked to this land. Uh, and Russians are those who were resettled to Crimea. And today, there is an attempt to cover up Putin's crimes by different false narratives. This is why it's important to know the history of Crimean Tatars. Second, the Crimea platform. Ukraine initiated a very in strong instrument, which, is a, which used to be a diplomatic uh, tool for coordinating countries and international organizations with one simple goal, the occupation of Crimea. And second, raid trading that Crimea is Ukraine. It's just because the international law has fixed it this way. And, and uh, the history uh, uh, shows this. Uh, so the Crimea platform unites 60 countries and international organizations. It operates on leaders level, governmental level, parliament level, expert level. And uh, Russia was very uh, nervous, I would say, and irritated with this platform because the biggest dream of every criminal is to hide its own crime. And the Crimea platform managed to bring back the Crimean issue to the international agenda because Russia has been doing its best to slip it down, you know, not to talk about Crimea and to treat it as a solved question. So the biggest conclusion and the biggest deliverable of the Crimea platform is probably one thing that many countries of the world, they accept the right of Ukraine and Ukrainian people to define how they would fight to bring back Crimea, to define what would be the future of Crimea and they are all consolidated around one thing, that Crimea is Ukraine. Let me just ask you one last quick question. Maybe it's a yes or no answer. Has your country's spring offensive already begun? This question, I would answer in the way that the battlefield success is very important. And we believe that Tactical steps that the armed forces are taken as of today and will be taken tomorrow, this, the goal of all of these steps, as well as the counteroffensive, is to defeat Russia, is to deoccupy Ukrainian territories, is to restore justice. And we are very much grateful to those countries who are with us uh, in this fight. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time, Minister Amine Zaparova. We wish you all the best. Thank you, Robbie. And that was Emine Zaparova, Ukraine's Deputy Foreign Minister. Remember, if you want to watch these in video live, go to foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers can send questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE, one word, for a discount. You can also see who else we have coming up on the show weeks ahead of time. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. I'll see you soon. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, Professor of Law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. 
I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.